Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 53, Themes of the Podcast 2, Ghost Stories as History. This is part two of an occasional series in which I, for lack of a better way of putting it, try to summarize what I have learned so far through writing the episodes of this podcast and interviewing the guests who have been good enough to give me their time. Part one of the series, which covered my definition of a ghost story, the idea of ghost stories as entertainment and as ways of conveying practical information, is episode 46. Feel free to go back and listen. In today's episode, I'd like to discuss the relationship between ghost stories and the way that people understand history. Like a lot of people who've had an association with the skeptics movement during the 1990s and early 2000s, I had a habit of thinking of ghost stories as something entertaining, yes, but also as something that was simply a matter of irrational people believing in nonsense, or of potentially rational people being fed bad information. It was a fairly narrow view, and one that has some rather obvious flaws, but it was one that I held on to for a while. But my training in anthropology kept poking its way in, and it eventually helped to pull me out of that mindset. I realized that ghost stories are about much, much more than belief in the supernatural. Though many ghost stories are simply entertaining or are simply matters of people not understanding mundane explanations, many ghost stories do cultural work that convey information that helps people mentally navigate the world. That much became obvious to me through my gathering of ghost stories. But what I hadn't really considered until I read Michelle Hank's book, Haunted Heritage, was the degree to which an interest in ghost stories could specifically help people formulate thoughts about history. This realization has led me to read books and articles about ghost tourism written by historians such as Tia Miles and Elena Pirock. The inevitable conclusion that comes from honestly looking at ghost folklore and even paranormal elements of pop culture is that the spooky tales form an important part of people's understanding of history. There is a fairly obvious way in which this is true. Ghosts are, by their nature, remnants of people now dead. In interacting with or observing a ghost, you are interacting with or observing someone from history. This is pretty straightforward. But where this gets more interesting is when we think about who the ghosts of the past are, how they are encountered, and what that sometimes can tell us about how those who think about ghost stories view history. In some cases, ghosts are family members, such as people who say that they feel the presence of a deceased grandparent. But as historians Elena Pirock and David Finnecane describe in their writings, ghosts are often treated as a type of fictive kin. That is, the ghost in question who haunts our house becomes our ghost, and is much like our uncle, who is not actually a blood relative, but rather the title given to a long-term family friend. Finucane describes how, during the Victorian period, the presence of a ghost in a middle-class or upper-class English home could serve to tie that family to the history of the house and, therefore, fix the family into a clear place in English identity, an identity rooted in notions of the role of the elite 
in English history. Similarly, Dr. Pirock has pointed out how many people in the state of Virginia, as well as other parts of the American South, will note the significance of their home, and by extension, themselves, by talking about the presence of their ghost and how they are connected to historical events such as the Revolution or the Civil War. Even if they do not explicitly describe the ghost and kinship terms, they nonetheless serve to root the individual to a location or event in the same way that a genetic family tie might be used. The use of ghosts to tie oneself and one's family to the past is likely an old tradition. As a student, I lost track of the number of papers and books I read that suggested that inhumation of bodies, or sometimes just skulls, within a home, either in the walls or in the floor, suggested that the residents of the home were demonstrating their tie to a location and an identity connected to that location. Placing one's ancestors and recently deceased family members within the fabric of the home and venerating them, or taking responsibility for the well-being of their spirits, ties the living directly to the history of the place and creates a sense of heritage, belonging, and legacy. Assyriologist Irving Finkel, in his book, The First Ghosts, demonstrated that, at least in Mesopotamia, this type of in-home burial served two purposes. First, it created the obligation of the living to the dead, with the living providing sustenance for the afterlife. Secondly, the internment and such close proximity provided the living with the ability to seek the help of their ancestors when needed. It is not much of a stretch to suggest that similar practices would have formed the basis of ancestor worship that appears to have been common in places as far away as Southeast Asia, Italy, and within the city of Kawachi in South America. Such beliefs could easily persist even without the physical remains being present. Aspects of it are even visible in modern beliefs about the spirits of the departed family members visiting us and in formal religious institutions such as the Catholic veneration of saints. So, using the spirits of the departed to tie oneself or one's family to history seems to be an old tradition. But this is not the only way that ghost beliefs interact with our understanding of history. Dr. Michelle Hanks and historians Elena Perak and Tia Miles all demonstrate in their writings how both beliefs in ghosts and the ways in which the ghost stories are formulated and shared can be used to construct specific understandings of history and historical events. Dr. Pirock, as previously noted, has written and spoken about how families have used ghost stories to root their households in significant events in local and even national history. She's also discussed the fact that many of the ghost stories in these homes, as well as the historical sites such as Colonial Williamsburg, represent and justify a very elite-based and very white understanding of American history. Native Americans, African Americans, and pretty much everyone else, including even the lower-class white people, are marginalized while the great men of history are venerated. They are who reappear in the ghostly form, and in doing so, they and their audience confirm that they are important and that their stories are the ones that matter. Dr. Miles provides an interesting view of the other side of this coin. In her book, Tales from the Haunted South, Dr. Miles describes how plantation tourism in the South has made use of ghost stories as a way of discussing slavery at the plantation, while also relegating it to the margins of visits to the plantation. It should be said that the plantations that Dr. Miles discusses are privately run to cater to tourists and not public institutions dedicated to education, but they still provide a striking example of the relationship between ghosts and history. Within the plantations that Dr. Miles describes, the stories of the enslaved people and discussions of slavery are often part of the nighttime ghost tours, with those enslaved being euphemistically referred to as servants during many of the daytime tours. 
These ghost tours are things done after dark and for fun rather than serious examinations of the history of these institutions. In so doing, the people in charge can give a presentation of slavery and claim that they are acknowledging that peculiar institution, while at the same time continuing to marginalize slavery and the experiences of enslaved people. This allows plantation tourists, largely white, to continue to romanticize the antebellum South while also engaging in some lascivious thrills regarding the nature of slavery. In making slavery the focus of ghost tours rather than a larger part of the mainstream tours, those running these plantations as tourist destinations are able to systematically compartmentalize slavery away from the daytime enjoyment of the large houses and the beautiful landscapes. To make matters worse, and frankly, much weirder, these ghosts are sometimes turned into romantic figures who long for the affection of the plantation owners. A case in point is that of a ghost named Chloe at the Myrtles Plantation in Louisiana, who is said to have been having an affair with the master of the house and then acted recklessly when he spurned her in order to reconcile with his wife. Chloe is an interesting case that deserves some attention, and I have an upcoming episode in the works on the Myrtles Plantation as a whole, but I'll give a brief thumbnail here. After she was spurned by her lover, who, let's remember, is the same man who kept her in slavery, she then poisoned his family, not with the intention of killing them, but of making them sick. Chloe, it is said, hoped that by being the person to nurse them back to health, she would win her owner's affection. Things go wrong when the children die, and Chloe is summarily executed. But of course, the tales say that she acted in such a misguided way, out of love. The narrative is all kinds of messed up when you consider that, in reality, the rape of slaves was pretty common, and based on the information that we do have, was far, far more likely than some sort of romance. It should also be said that Dr. Miles found no evidence that Chloe ever even existed. And yet, despite the reality of the story's protagonist being a complete fiction, by far the most disgustingly unrealistic element of the story is the emphasis on love and loss as opposed to ownership and coerced sex. Even if there was some actual affection, it exists in a context where one party literally owns the other and can do with them as they please, which, again is pretty disturbing when you stop to think about it. Nonetheless, many visitors, especially young women, have come to view the figure of the enslaved young Chloe as a martyr for love and a figure that represents pure romance. The tale could also be taken to suggest that Chloe could have poisoned the family to death at any time of her choosing, but did not do so because she liked some aspect of being enslaved. This indicates an ability to whitewash the many unsavory and disturbing aspects of slavery in general, and chattel slavery in particular, in order to create a romantic story that serves a lost cause narrative in which slavery really wasn't so bad and might even have had some beauty in it. While Chloe appears to be fictional, there were people kept in slavery at the Myrtles' plantation. In the person of Chloe, Dr. Miles provides a case of those who were brutalized in life being abstracted and treated as entertainment in death. Chloe and other named plantation ghosts also demonstrate something that Dr. Pirock has discussed, populating the past with specific people rather than an abstract population. While Chloe is fiction, she is easy to imagine due to the ample photos and illustrations of the plantation and the people who lived there, including photos and videos of people dressed as Chloe. Dr. Pirock has argued that this process of placing known or recognizable characters into a historical setting was done more intentionally at Colonial Williamsburg, where one of the founders of the project, 
Dr. W.A.R. Goodwin, was known to say that he believed that the ghosts of historic figures were still present and would be pleased by the restoration of the town. The peopling of historic places with ghosts also allows visitors an entryway into understanding the past in a more mundane way. Dr. Pirock persuasively argues that the presence of colonial era and Civil War ghosts in homes and on city streets allows people to feel that they are interacting with those who were really there, rather than learning lessons in a more abstract way from a history book. This allows modern people to situate themselves in relation to history by understanding the people of the past as people rather than as legendary figures. Similarly, in my discussion with Laura Fies about ghosts on the USS Hornet, episode 40, she spoke quite clearly about how the belief in specific ghosts allowed visitors to better identify with the men who had served on the ship. History quite literally comes alive through the appeal of the spirits of the long dead. The peopling of the past with ghosts is, however, a double-edged sword. While it can foster an understanding of past events and remind us of our common humanity with our ancestors, it can also lead to some rather strange distortions. It is worth considering the benefits and detriments of allowing our historical understanding to be filtered through ghostly tales. On the positive side, this allows people to have a more open understanding of history. They can imagine people of the past as being no more or less aware of their own future than we, in the modern day, are of our own. This allows a better understanding of why people may have been prone to make decisions that, in hindsight, were bad. It also allows one to be more sympathetic to why people of the past may have bought into ideas that seem strange or even self-defeating to us, and, in turn, allows us to consider how we might fall into some of the same pitfalls in the here and now. Also, this peopling of the past allows us to get past the great man of history narratives and consider that there were always just normal rank and file members of society and that these people ultimately were the ones whose lives made historical events possible. Since most of us would fall into that category of regular folk, we find it easier to connect with other regular folk. What's more, by peopling the past via ghosts, members of the public often become more excited about history because of the entryway that this provides. That is all to the good and suggests that ghost stories can actually have a beneficial effect on how we understand history. But, of course, the ghost story can also distort our view of history. Ghosts, by their very nature, have never been proven to exist. Dr. Hanks, in her work on ghost tourism and paranormal investigation in England, has shown that this lack of proof can affect how people develop their understanding of the past. First, when a respected institution features ghosts as part of their interpretive work without also reflecting on the fact that the very existence of ghosts would be an inherently profound change to historical perceptions of reality, it makes two different frameworks for understanding the past collide. In one framework, the existence of the unproven or unevidenced is taken for granted, and ghosts can be taken as real based on little more than folk tales or sensationalistic stories. In the other framework, there is a need for evidence and factual data. Now, I don't want to overstate this. Dr. Pirock's work has shown that people can become excited about history through ghost stories while still being able to compartmentalize their interest in ghosts and what they are willing to accept as historical fact. However, this does muddy the boundaries between what is historically known and what is culturally accepted, even if unproven or disproven. This can undermine the ability of institutions to teach about history. Moreover, it allows cover for those who are less concerned with history than with sensationalism to portray the spooky tale as actual history. 
Such a thing occurred at the Winchester Mystery House in California, where a fabricated story of a wealthy but haunted recluse has been substituted for the actual life story of Sarah Winchester. A second and related problem is that the erosion of boundaries between historical data and spooky folklore can lead to a nihilistic assessment of the capacity of people to truly understand the past. Now, much as I don't want to suggest that the use of ghost folklore to learn tourists will automatically lead to the erosion of the authority of institutions like museums, I also don't want to oversell the potential for the acceptance of the possibility of ghosts to lead to a rejection of expertise and basic knowledge of history. Again, people are quite good at compartmentalizing these feelings and beliefs. However, Dr. Hanks has observed in her ethnographic work with paranormal investigators that it is not uncommon for many of them to see their own inability to confidently know the past through paranormal research as an indication that no other method of knowing the past, such as historical research or archaeology, is reliable. In essence, the doubts of the paranormal investigators about the true meaning of what they find and the difficulty of teasing out a clear understanding of the past through the data and psychic impressions with which they work can cause them to also doubt the ability of archaeologists and historians to truly make sense out of the material past and written record. It is worth remembering that, as Alina Pirak has shown, participating in ghost tourism has not destroyed history museums, nor have most enthusiasts of the paranormal fallen into the intellectual nihilism that Michelle Hanks has identified among some of her paranormal investigator informants. However, that these things do happen demonstrates that, just as the owners of the plantations can modify and utilize ghost stories to whitewash history, the introductions of porous barriers between actual history and the ghost stories coming from both educational institutions and general enthusiasts of the paranormal can create openings where new historical narratives can be brought in. I've already spoken about Tia Miles' work in which she finds that ghost stories surrounding slavery have been used to whitewash past wrongs and make modern, largely white audiences comfortable with minimizing the role of slaves in plantations in the American South, as well as with the brutality of chattel slavery. Arguably, the same could be said for how the trope of the Indian burial ground is often invoked to explain alleged hauntings or for how ghost stories involving Chinese laborers in California often place these workers on the outskirts of cities or in isolated locations. However, there is something curious in that the Indian burial ground claim gives an acknowledgement that the land once belonged to another group, and the Chinese laborer stories often seem to speak to the isolation and alienation of these migrant workers. In contrast, the marginalization of ghost stories involving slavery seems to primarily serve to move the topic of slavery away from the center of discussion. It suggests that these ghost stories from the American South may help to subtly move our focus away from the bad behavior, embarrassing, or tragic events in the past in a way that other ghost stories about minority groups may not. Dr. Pirock reports that something somewhat different happened in Colonial Williamsburg when unofficial ghost tours began to occur. At the time, the museum was becoming more accurate and more inclusive in its restoration and living history efforts by including more information on craftsmen, then working class whites, and then eventually developing an African-American interpretive project. An unforeseen byproduct of this increase in accuracy was that unofficial ghost tour providers began to double down on the stories of the great men of the revolution. These ghost tours maintained a historic narrative that would have felt nostalgic to someone who had attended school during the Jim Crow era but they were often riddled with factual errors. 
Unlike the type of tourism that Dr. Miles observed, where stories involving slavery were marginalized, the narratives from unofficial ghost tour operators at Colonial Williamsburg simply overlooked slavery altogether in favor of a very whitewashed history in which great men did great things and we don't need to worry about their motives and they never had an impure thought. While it is easy, and even accurate, to say that the historic narratives pushed by this type of ghost lore are propaganda and not history, it is nevertheless worth noting that these simple black-and-white stories feed a desire that many people have to feel proud of their nation's history and not have to consider its true complexities. Indeed, we see just such a reactionary desire to stick one's head in the sand in the current moral panic over what many people are calling woke history. Witness, for example, the freakout that many people had over the 1619 Project from the New York Times, which sought to produce an accurate discussion of the history of slavery and race policy in the U.S. None of what was discussed was actually controversial with actual historians, but the project was widely attacked by cable news and talk radio hosts. The same desire to look away from and ignore the stains on our historic record can be seen in the way that some people use certain ghost stories. Of course, it can also swing in the other direction. Michelle Hanks found that many of the paranormal investigators with whom she was working, as well as many ghost tour guides, would provide spooky tales that provided a view of history that shifted away from great men and great deeds and focused instead on working class people in the past. In reading Haunted Heritage, it's impossible not to be struck by the degree to which the paranormal investigators would interpret what they experienced as possible evidence of other long-dead working class people folks just like them. Dr. Hanks makes it clear that most of the paranormal investigators in England are working class, so it makes sense that they were drawn to ghosts that might mirror their own experiences in some way. This emphasis shifted the discussion away from kings, lords, ladies, great clergy, and captains of industry, and instead focused it on the common people of the past, who've always made up the overwhelming majority of every population on the planet. Hanks makes it clear that, despite England's long history of interactions of people from various racial backgrounds, these working-class ghosts were always white. This trend persisted even in places and with ghosts from time periods where that lack of diversity would not actually make any sense. So it wasn't a perfect, inclusive historic narrative that truly reflected the past, but it also wasn't the reactionary great men types of narratives that ignore the uglier sides of the past or attempt to marginalize actual suffering. A strong version of this type of narrative can be found in the folklore and even official tour materials for Mary King's Close in Scotland. This is discussed in some detail in episode 14, but a brief summary is that when the city of Edinburgh decided in the 18th and 19th centuries to build new city administrative buildings, they used the existing buildings in the area of a street known as Mary King's Close as the foundation. This essentially turned the living streets and existing houses into a cellar. As the people who were already living there had little choice, they stayed in the neighborhood, despite it being turned into a subterranean maze by the actions of the city officials. When the plague broke out in the close, the people who lived there, who were both working class and largely Catholic, were walled in and left to die in the dark by the great and the good aristocrats who ran the city, and now, of course, their ghosts haunt the place. Now, Mary King's Close was indeed an active city street that was, indeed, covered over by the construction of new city administrative buildings. All of that's true. However, the building construction occurred in the early 19th century, after Mary King's Close had experienced two centuries of economic decline. And the tales of people being walled in to starve in the dark are factually incorrect. 
it was never actually completely walled off, and it was already largely depopulated when the new buildings were constructed in the early 1800s. But the story speaks to a feeling that many people have that those in power are perfectly happy to turn a blind eye to harm or even actively cause harm to people that they see as their social inferiors, especially if they are part of a minority group, as Catholics would have been in early modern Scotland. The facts are all wrong and are not real history, but it does speak to the historical realities of how people were genuinely divided into classes and sects, and how their worthiness as people was often judged based upon those divisions. Ghost stories can also serve a related, but different purpose. They can serve to record events that people in positions of power would just as soon forget. It should be said that those in positions of power don't usually include historians who usually have very little power. Writer, director, and historian Koya Paz, while working on her thesis for her graduate degree, looked for information on lynchings of Latino people in Gold Rush, California, but found very little in the standard primary sources. As the lynchings were, by their very nature, not sanctioned by the government, they were often not recorded. In her research, however, she found that if she encountered a ghost story concerning the spirit of a lynching victim, she could start looking through less official records, such as newspapers and diary entries, and find that the events that sparked the ghost story. While the details were often different, the ghost story nonetheless pointed to a specific act of violence that had occurred. This would go on to inspire her 100 Hauntings Project, a multimedia theater performance that uses ghost stories as a way of exploring the often underreported aspects of Chicago's history. As with the previously discussed interactions between the ghostly and the historic record, I want to be cautious and not make more of this than is warranted. Not every spooky tale has its origins in actual events. Some stories are created out of whole cloth for a variety of reasons, and some are even based on complete misunderstandings of actual historic events. But Paz's work does point us to the fact that ghost stories, as a form of oral tradition, have the ability to carry information about the past that might otherwise be forgotten due to it not being in the interest of those in power to remember it. The use of ghost stories to record tales of lynchings and other historic wrongs brings us to another use of the ghost story within a historic context. The use of the ghost story as an expression of historic wrongs and historic traumas. This is intertwined with several of the uses already described. In a sense, you could argue that the ghost stories based around slavery described by Dr. Miles fall into this category, as they do provide a folkloric reminder of past traumatic events. But through the way that they are framed and the settings in which many are told, these stories appear to minimize or marginalize troubling aspects of the past. What I'm thinking of here is better reflected by one of the ghost stories associated with London Bridge. It is said, at the side of the bridge, you can hear voices screaming in fear and agony. Some tellings attribute these voices to an episode in the 13th century when the King of England issued a decree ordering all Jews to leave England. According to the story, either a ship's captain abandoned his Jewish passengers on the bank of the Thames and they all drowned when the water rose, or the captain took them aboard his ship, but it capsized, drowning all passengers. Regardless of the exact circumstances, the drownings would not have occurred without the decree, which itself was an unjust act based on prejudice. Also, the voices are not just heard in the nation's capital, but at what was historically one of the most important locations in the capital, the place where the River Thames divided the city and has historically been crossed, i.e. where the capital is linked to the river that has long been a vital part of its economic power. 
One doesn't need to believe in ghosts to accept that the ghost story allows Jewish victims from the 13th century to continue to haunt the city of London. I have spoken in previous episodes about the ghost stories I learned in childhood regarding the spirits of Chinese railroad workers and their mistreatment. While these stories arguably minimize the suffering of Chinese migrant workers by turning it into entertainment for children with more ghoulish tastes, it is nonetheless also true that it served as a reminder that much of what we took for granted around us was built by people who worked in rough conditions under racist policies. While it is reasonable to be concerned that this is how these lessons are communicated among children, it was also nevertheless the case that neither I, nor most of the people I grew up with, have ever forgotten that the railroads were built by imported Asian laborers who were often housed poorly and subject to inhumane conditions. We remember because of the ghost stories. This has been a brief primer on the subject of how ghost stories and historical narratives interact. As I hope I've demonstrated, these ghost stories and an interest in the paranormal can influence how people think about the possibility of knowing the past, as well as the types of historic narratives that we are presented with. And I hope that I've been able to demonstrate that these relationships are complex. Ghost stories can marginalize important stories about past wrongs, but they can also ensure that those same past wrongs stay fixed in the public consciousness. These stories can lead to warped understandings of the actual past, but can also act as a way of preventing people in positions of power from being able to brush events under the rug. Ultimately, the ghost story is neither the friend nor the foe of historical understanding, but rather both the tool that can be used to enhance it and a potentially complicating element that must be accounted for. The connection between ghost stories and history is not simple, nor is it always straightforward, but the past and the paranormal are connected in ways that anyone wishing to communicate history should keep in mind. This has been a brief primer on the subject of how ghost stories and historical narratives interact. As I hope I've demonstrated, these ghost stories and an interest in the paranormal can influence how people think about the possibility of knowing the past, as well as the types of historic narratives that we are presented with. And I hope that I've been able to demonstrate that these relationships are complex. Ghost stories can marginalize important stories about past wrongs, but they can also ensure that those same past wrongs stay fixed in the public consciousness. These stories can lead to warped understandings of the actual past, but can also act as a way of preventing people in positions of power from being able to brush events under the rug. Ultimately, the ghost story is neither the friend nor the foe of historical understanding, but rather both the tool that can be used to enhance it and a potentially complicating element that must be accounted for. The connection between ghost stories and history is not simple, nor is it always straightforward, but the past and the paranormal are connected in ways that anyone wishing to communicate history should keep in mind. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!